Edward, thanks for coming to be in conversation. Looking at this very interesting space around us, looking at your bio, what got you into all the creativity, the good lab? Mm. Given your own bio, you're straight into the law, you're a fairly straight career. Do you feel a frustration that there wasn't enough creativity in your own life? Well, I'm not sure whether I'm a creative person. This is a space, this is an incubator space. Mm. Um, and I think, um, you know, my career has always been very varied and cross-boundary. The law is a family thing. Right. Um, my brother's a lawyer, my father's a lawyer, so eventually I was pushed to do law um, in the mid-80s mm. and then um, came back to Hong Kong. And I have been very much interested in, um, in a public sphere, in mm -hmm. working for the society. So I don't know where that came from, honestly. Right. Uh, but um, yes, cultural policy um, is also um, quite, quite a big thing for me. Uh, do you think so it's going to, I mean, do you think it'll work? One can provide all the spaces. What's the magic ingredient? Well, you're quite right to say that the space is actually not the most important. Mm. Uh, but space in Hong Kong is um, actually uh, very, very limited and restricted. Mm. The space will provide the imagination and also um, the, um, the creativity flow. It will also induce a lot of peer-to-peer -peer conversations. So we have got 100 plus members here. Um, they're from all walks of life and mm. they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to um, have a desk here so that they can uh, throw out ideas and talk to people and see whether that idea could become a venture. And here we emphasize on social ventures, okay. which means that um, ventures that could make some money, but at the same time, um, it has a double bottom line so that it also benefits the society. So what is it about out there that means that that doesn't happen anywhere? Well, it's, it's, it's the biggest thing in Hong Kong, is the property market. Mm. The property market is, is, is very high, uh, rents are very high. Um, entrepreneurs don't really have any chance to succeed here if they don't start with the space. Whereas I think in Europe and in the US, you can actually get a relatively um, uh, inexpensive place to start, um, to incubate, to, 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 to have your startup. But here, um, if you don't really have a space like this, it's very difficult for them to, um, to, to rent a space and to get to meet the people. So normally they work at home. That didn't seem to be a problem 30, 40 years ago. Hong Kong had lots of ah, energy, yes. dynamism, in awful conditions, actually. Huge overcrowding. And, and yet, nonetheless, the place was dynamic. But it was why, creative. Why, do you, why did you think that we had such a you know, thriving uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, and a community that is developing? Um, and I think it's, it's because of the diversity in society. Mm. Everybody came from somewhere, mm. but since they've um, made Hong Kong their home, they want to make it big here, and they want to have a, a good family here. They are willing to contribute to society. And it seems that um, when things are more prosperous these days, um, this sort of feeling is actually long gone. In a sense, then, we're saying when, when times were tough, people were motivated. Yes, because entrepreneurship means taking risk. Right. So and uh, when the society is um, very affluent now, mm. you will hear middle class parents telling their kids, don't ever go to start your own business. This right. is too dangerous, too risky. Join the civil service. Uh, yes, <laughs> or, well, <laughs> be a professional, right. be a doctor, be a lawyer. Somehow, the, what, the disconnect I'm getting here, for me, is somehow we provide 
you, you're in the business of providing the context in which this can grow. And I'm still not myself quite understanding what it is that adds the little magic ingredient. I think interaction is the first thing because people don't talk to each other anymore. People actually look down on their device, mm. right? And they don't really look up to, to say hi to each other. Right. I think in order for a social venture to grow, we need the right people, we need the right ideas. Of course, with then we need money. Mm. At the Good Lab, we don't really have that much money, but we can provide the people and we can provide the ideas. Now, the ideas that work normally come from um, a lot of jamming and perhaps some serendipity. Mm -hmm. so you meet somebody who is totally different from you, you just tell them the idea and you will see, you, you bounce off the idea with this person and you see what sort of feedback you get. So if this were happening in California uh, or Berlin maybe, I could see, yeah sure, this, this is going on, this is happening and then they go back out into the wider world and it's, uh, if you like, it's more receptive. It's a bit like, here's the hothouse, mm. we take the plants, we put them back out in the soil. <laughs> Hong Kong soil out there, that doesn't seem to be quite so receptive. So uh, are you saying that we're not a world city like London, New York? They have all these incubators and we can't have them? No, sure we can, but I'm just thinking of the environment in Hong Kong, which is very short-term minded in many Correct, ways. Yes. So. Often incubators like this, it's a slow burn. I think that, yes, in a way, Hong Kong society is very conservative. They don't understand failure. But for entrepreneurs, um, most of them fail, actually. Mm. I was told that around 80% of um, uh, enterprises fail, especially social enterprises. Only 10, 20% will make it, and maybe less than 5% will make it big, and the mm. venture becomes sustainable. Right. So when you, when you talk to a government official about this high failure rate, they will say, you are, you are pretty crazy mm. um, to, uh, to support this and um, for government money to come into this, no way. Right. But if you, if you look at what's happening around the world, um, don't look too far, don't look to um, Silicon Valley or London, but look at Singapore, look at Shanghai. Right. Um, they are such incubators. Hong Kong is um, really lagging behind. Hong Kong is not known for innovation because we don't believe in innovation. We, belong, we, we, we believe in property speculation and stock, right. stocks. But we, we also don't believe in R&D. I mean, what's Hong Kong's R&D figure? 0 0.72, 0.75% yeah, of, of, yeah, of GDP, whereas Singapore, nearly 2%. Yeah. Anywhere that's really making it over 2%. How is that going to change? Hong Kong will be very slow to change, mm. but I think it should change in the next five to ten years. Whether we like it or not, um, this is a te technology era and this tech development is actually affecting the way we live. Not just about more computer games that make it big, but the way we go about interacting with each other, uh, the way we travel, mm -hmm. you know, you, we have these websites now where um, people just uh, let out a room so right. it's actually hurting the travel industries and the hotel business in Europe these days. Sure. So whether you like it or not, um, a lot of things, a lot of innovations uh, will change um, the job market. But the first thing that happens, and it's been in the news I think the last couple of weeks, is that suddenly the vested lobbies start coming in saying, wait a minute, 
And Hong Kong is a very regulated society. So if we get people like that here, we can pretty much guarantee there will be somebody coming out of the woodwork. So you're saying Hong Kong does not need to change? Oh, it needs to change, yes. I'm just wondering how much this is going to force it. Well, I think, um, of course, I don't believe in more regulation, but I think there are ways around it, mm. and you cannot fight technology. But my, what my thinking is that I just read The Economist um, a few weeks ago, and there was an article which says that in the West, around 50 to 60 percent young people now think that um, being an entrepreneur is a, a, is a possible career. Mm. So they are no longer just job ready. They are thinking about new ways of um, creating a new enterprise and also of providing jobs for others. You mentioned The Economist, and I, I can remember they had a, a supplement on technology. I think about three or four weeks ago. Mm. And one of the things they were making the point of is, is that the, the job market is hollowing out in the middle. People who fix your hair, do your nails, uh, do your plumbing. The robots can do that, right? No, 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 they yeah. can't. That's the difficult. Those, that's almost impossible to do in AI. Anything you can write an algorithm for, like being conveyancing, like <laughs> accounting, anything, any, anything most civil servants do, you can write an algorithm for that, it's just a procedure, and that's really easy to automate. It's really about creativity these days, it's really about thinking what sort of creative skills young people need in order to survive in such a world that you have described, that um, most jobs uh, could be done by a thing, a thing yeah. <laughs> not a human. But I want to go back to creative skills because mm. that is something that um, I've been thinking a lot about and um, I've been reading about. Uh, because at the School of Creativity, everybody thinks that I'm just doing art education. Mm. Uh, but it's actually a bit more than that. I want to think about um, what creative skills are. And by skills, I don't mean that um, they can do sketching mm. or they can uh, do videotaking. Uh, I think it, it, it comes down to several things. First, they, they, need, to be, they need to be um, digital savvy. Mm -hmm. They need to harness technology rather than being controlled by technology. They probably need to learn a bit coding. But then the more important thing is they need to go back to their roots to understand tradition, to understand crafts. Mm -hmm. um, you know that there's a big maker movement around the world where do-it-yourself, the DIY spirit is, is very, very prevalent. And, and so with, with, with this sort of scenario, um, and you know, as an educator, and also a social innovation enthusiast, mm. what do you tell this next generation? You know, what sort of skills they, that they need to have? So, so they need to use their hands, they need to understand traditional crafts, and I think this is very important. They, they need to understand the, the humanity and the history of things. So, so in our school, we now have a bit more history, a bit more experiencing with different um, arts and crafts. We always have um, these traditional um, craftsmen uh, doing flower plaques, uh, traditional flower plaques, and, and, um, and um, um, puppets, mm -hmm. and, and this sort of thing, so that they, they learn. They learn these skills not because they want to make money out of it, not because it's, it's like an apprenticeship. It's not but for them to realize that everything starts from the hand. Right. It's not just one finger, it's two hands. Right, right. And, and that for me is very important. So let's move on now from generating creativity 
in an entrepreneurial sense to that other sort of creativity, which is a society's broader cultural life. Mm. Is that something that the private sector should be left to do, or is there a real role for government? Well, whether it's before 1997 or now, I think the government had a very, very big role. And it will continue to have a very big role. And unfortunately, the private sector has not contributed as much. So you will know that in the, back in the early days, um, we had the Urban Council. So the, the reason I got very interested in arts and culture and also mm -hmm. cultural policy is um, because I have five years, uh, five years, yes, in, in the Urban Council. So before it was dissolved mm. uh, on the eve of the millennium. Right. And, um, and then, you know, it just uh, so my interest in, in, um, in, in passion in the arts did not stop after that. Right. And I became a, a cultural advocate. So, so what's the difference between Hong Kong and 15th century Florence? There you've got this dynamic uh, community in Florence, people making loads of money, having invented double-entry double bookkeeping, this, that and the other thing. And they're putting lots of money into the arts and it flourishes and becomes the great centre of artistic creativity. What? Well, I didn't, um, I didn't think Florence, uh, the government of Florence, had such a big role to play. They and didn't. There was, all that, there, there was all that patronage coming That's from right. rich people. Only patrons and artists. Mm. And when we don't have this in the art ecosystem in Hong Kong, it's only government and artists. Uh, that's, that's where all the problems lie. Um, first of all, government funding in the arts is actually just in a lot of hardware. Mm. So you see the Hong Kong Cultural Center, whether you like it or not, that costs a lot of money, and then the Museum of Art, and we've got 13 museums. Uh, we've got a lot of performance venues. Um, then we have uh, a lot of uh, subsidies for the flagship performing arts companies. But when you look at what is lacking, uh, for the young artist uh, to, um, to work. And, and these are what I call production spaces. Right. So the factory buildings where the performing artists will, uh, will be able to rehearse and just experiment um, new plays and new works. Um, for the visual artists, they need a studio where they can do a painting right. at their leisure and they will be supported uh, and hopefully with reasonable rent. In Hong Kong, we have all our art production spaces in the industrial parts of right. the town. But these industrial parts are now being, quote, quote revitalized. Right. Uh, and they're turning into hotels, they're turning into commercial buildings, and they get uh, actually um, concessions in land premium uh, for turning an industrial building into hotels. So my artist friends are now telling me that maybe 10 years ago, um, um, a factory building in Kuantong would have $2 per square foot. Right. Now it's probably $15 per square foot. So not and affordable for a young artist? No, definitely not. So, so whether they are a photographer, a visual artist, or a post-production company, um, everybody is, is facing a lot of difficulties because, um, um, first of all, there's no space anymore. Uh, the revitalization craze is really um, moving very, very quickly. And, um, and then, you know, the landlords don't actually want to renew your tenancy if right. they have idea of, um, uh, you know, renovating the building. We, we've slipped across a little boundary there, post-production companies, stuff like that, working in a, in a place where there's a genuine commercial market mm -hmm. for, for their skills. If they're good, presumably people will hire them. Okay. With, with artists producing paintings, performing arts, 
the demand supply situation is a bit more fuzzy. So it depends on government grants, and, mm. and because most of our venues are government controlled, I would say 90% of Hong Kong's performing venues are government controlled. Uh, you have to go to the LCSD, you have to ask them um, for a slot, mm. and, or maybe for a subsidy for a presentation fee, so they'll present your play, and they will give you six shows, and yes, so you get the, the script writer and the actors and actresses together, and you produce that play, and afterwards you have to start all over again. So this was how it was operated um, from before 97 to now. So nothing has changed. And I so think what's the solution? A culture ministry with... Well, do we really want one? Do we really want one? So, well, so yeah, there was a lot one, of talk two years solution? ago. Uh, the solution is really for government to, um, I would say, to, to actually have an intermediary to look at um, funding and subsidies and not to do it themselves. What because the intermediary might have um, longer term vision uh, and they might so also This is an arts council, like, like, in, like in Britain? Something like that, but uh, a visionary arts council. How do we... How, how, ah. We have one, but ours is not very visionary, the Arts Development Council. And it has got very, very little money. It only has $50 million, as opposed to the LCSD, uh, they have more than $300 million. Right. Yeah. But how, you, you can't dial in visionary. Where does the visionary come from? Oh, the, the vision will come from a lot of people uh, who are cultural advocates. Um, it, it should come from, you know, having a very diverse board. So it goes back to my idea of diversity again. I think um, if you just have one kind of people on that board uh, or one kind of decision makers, um, you know, nothing new will happen. But it will inevitably, always be a status quo. The status quo is going to make itself felt, presumably, because government is always going to turn, turn around and say, this is public money and we're responsible for it and we have to account for it and immediately everything starts to seize up. Okay, then you have to look at um, um, examples in other cities and other countries. Yes, uh, they have um, big white elephants like we do, mm. uh, but I can see that uh, a lot of institutions in the West, they're changing. So they are also you know, going through a metamorphosis. And, and what triggered that? And I think it's, it's, it's you know, for somebody who is a champion, mm -hmm. somebody who, who is trusted by both government officials and the arts, and the artists and, and the art sector as a whole. Now, these people are very, very rare to find. But as soon as you identify such a person, and if this person appears, then you know, the things move uh, fairly quickly. So now in the UK, for example, they're looking into how digital technology would help the performing arts and also the visual arts. Um, but here we, we are not even talking about the crossing over of technology and the arts. So We're really far behind. And do you see anybody imminently ready to take on the role? There are a couple of people of? in Hong Kong, I think. And but it's, um, I think it's a matter of trust these days. Um, there's very true trust anywhere, uh, especially cross-sector. Right. Yeah. What about government itself? I mean, do you think government is genuinely in favour of the arts or not? Well, we now have this very big thing called the West Kowloon Cultural District, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't know when it is going to be built because if the express rail link is severely delayed, then the West Kowloon Cultural Project will be severely delayed. 
So maybe, um, maybe in five, ten years' time when I also retire, <laughs> that thing will be built. <laughs> <laughs> it won't. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you.